You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix, and today is July 13, 2019. Let's get right into the show. So today I have some reoccurring guests, friends. Got Matt on the show. How you doing, Matt? Good, good. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. And I got my good friend, Misha. How you doing? Not bad. A little sweaty. It's hot out. <laughs> yeah, it is a little hot out. It's better than rain, though. All right. So today's show, I kind of wanted to get into the topic... Or I think it gets a topic of foreign policy and why I think it's important to talk about it um, and also maybe connect that to the anti-war movement and how it connects, I guess, to each one of our worldviews. So to me personally, um, I, I kind of started out, at least politically, being enticed by the anti-war movement. I want to say this was around – the time I went into high school, 2007, 2008, I was, um, you know, uh, hearing things from overseas. I had family overseas in Iraq during the Iraq war. And, um, you know, things were not good. Things were pretty terrible. And the intervention there led me to, you know, hear a bunch of anti-war activists speak out, um, anti-war groups. And that's kind of what got me into politics generally. Before that, I was pretty much apolitical, didn't really care, wasn't a uh, concern of mine. But I would say right now um, I can look back and say that the anti-war movement is where my political center kind of started. So I guess for you guys, um, where where would you say – you know, why, why do you think talking about foreign policy is so important? I mean in terms of – the essential nature of how you know governments run, or is it more so a social thing and kind of connects to a larger you know topic? I mean, shall we go first and uh, break it down for us? Well, I'd say it's important to discuss just because of how disastrous U.S. foreign policy has been. I mean, mm-hmm. since in the, throughout the 20th century and before that, even yeah. Um, and obviously, the Iraq War, as you mentioned, was a disaster. Yeah. So I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we'll all um, kind of agree, like, be non-interventionists. Yes, you know, I, uh, think, I think where we might have more dissension, you know, um, will be like the causes of the yes. war and like yes. the interests involved, of and course. you know, the motives behind everything. So that'll be interesting to get into both, um, you know, our non-interventionist worldviews and where we might diverge a little bit. I think that sounds great. It sounds like a good idea, Matt. How about you? Where do you think you come from in terms of your view of foreign policy and why it's important? Foreign policy for me is important just because since the dawn of humanity, 
<clears throat> you could kind of look at like the interactions between the first two humans as the first foreign policy. Yeah, I or maybe see. even the first two groups of humans. But you know, I it started the roots of foreign policy started very, very early on mm-hmm. in human history, and they've just been developing and developing since the, basically the dawn of humanity. Got you. So, would you say that? Foreign policy in a sense like culture. So I would say culture has evolved over time as we've evolved over time. But would you also say that foreign policy and the ideas of foreign policy have evolved over time as, you know, our culture has? Or would you say they're kind of separate but, you know, you know, equal? <laughs> um, I mean, they've, it's definitely evolved over time, but I think that there has been a lot of like past foreign policy borrowed and adapted to fit like the current times. You, yeah. There are a lot of similarities mm-hmm. um, between past and present, mm-hmm. but um, currently, I'd say the main difference in the present time is how globalized everything is, how connected gotcha. all the different countries are. Mm-hmm. It's just added like a, another layer of complexity to the whole situation. Is it a factor of technology or just a factor of um, the way states have evolved over time? Definitely a lot of both. Okay. Okay. That's, I think that's a fair, that's a fair point of view. Okay. So I guess, so I guess that's what you see as foreign policy now in terms of, you know, I guess the definition of it, we can kind of get out of the way. I guess, you know, the, the approach, the foreign policy, I guess, is the approach to, uh, I guess that are strategically employed for interactions between nations and nations, other countries and other countries. Um, would you guys agree that? So I think before <laughs> foreign policy, generally, there was, um, war, right? And before there was discussion, before there was any type of diplomacy, there was warfare. There was, you know, like you said, during the Neolithic period, there was a lot of warfare. And that's, if you look at, you know, human uh, bone records, it really shows that there, war has been with us since the beginning. Um, but looking back, would you say that, um, for, for both of you, do you think that we as people today can kind of learn from the lessons or are we doomed to kind of make the same mistakes over and over again? When I say we as a people, I mean that as, a populace that is being influenced by the media and being influenced by, you know, the state and also uh, in terms of the state apparatus itself. Uh, Misha? I don't think anything um, historically is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I don't think like we're destined to just like be at war forever. I think, you know, the way anything changes is like a mass mobilization of people mm-hmm. speaking out against things and fighting back yes. against like the powers that be who, you know, are often incentivized to go to war for various mm-hmm. reasons. Um, so, no, I don't believe – I'm not like fatalist, gotcha, fatalistic cool. about it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think peace is possible. I think that uh, it's going to take uh, a huge effort over a long period of time. I mean, we have basically the Pentagon mm-hmm. and the generals in the Pentagon have yes. had a chokehold over U.S. foreign policy, especially over the last, you know, 60, 70 years. I mean, I since agree. the end of World War II. I would agree. Um and so reducing their power, reducing the military budget, um, you know, we could get into the Kennedy administration, everything yeah. that happened there and how Kennedy tried to push back against the generals and very much so. You know, yes. he got one of those one of those rides, those free rides in Dallas. Because <laughs> of it. But uh, yeah, that's basically how I think about it. OK, OK. Uh, Matt? I, I definitely share the view that it's non-deterministic. OK. Um, nothing set in stone. Okay. You can change the outcome of the future. Mm-hmm. But um, I I definitely think that 
it's hard to know what that's going to look like, what the what change is going to be needed to drastically change the future mm-hmm. to a different outcome. Just because you said the military spending of the United States is way overstepped, like there's <laughs> way too much. Yeah, um, a lot of the government is just way too big <clears throat> and bleeding money, just super inefficient. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of that needs to be changed. Okay, but. As far as making that happen in reality, it's going to take a lot of effort. Okay. And I just – I don't see the U.S. populace as being ready to take that step at the moment. Okay. Now, do you think that – you you both think that the U.S. populace's care about warfare and about – because in my opinion, in terms of what our government does and doesn't do, I think you know foreign interventionism and foreign uh, adventurism in general – has caused the most destruction, the most amount of money lost, the most amount of lives lost. Um, it's, like you said, been sucking the country dry and it's been destroying other countries and destroying their foundations. Now, do you, do you think that we as, uh, cause I mentioned, you know, a few things earlier, but do you think that we as, you know, Americans are not worried about war in a sense as much because there isn't a draft and it doesn't mean, so, Every time there's a war, there is the public outcry was primarily because oh my son is going to go to war or whatever. Now that the draft has been you know gone, do you think that that has helped the government have a more control over the idea of warfare and going to war versus before? Uh, so this gets into the idea of the military-industrial complex, sure, and please. the the evolution of that throughout United States history. Yeah, but um, as far as the idea of um I, i'm sorry could you repeat the question yeah so basically i was saying do you think that since they removed the conscript- oh, conscription the, how do people feel about warfare yeah right. it's changed do you think that uh, the idea that the reason people don't have they've less uh, skin the game now right, so is, that, is right. that make it easier for the pentagon to basically yeah, do things because without the it's been because outraged. it's been so normalized because mm-hmm. of the 24-hour news cycle you're just constantly blasted with all these stories about yes. it. It's become normalized. Yeah. The fighting isn't on US soil and I think that until it is, if it ever is, hope it's not. Yeah. But I don't think that they'll really it's there's such a disconnect between drones bombing people in the Middle East and people sitting on their couches and watching it on TV. Like I agree. It doesn't affect them at all. I agree. That's I a good agree. point, man. It also, it also gets to like a broader um apathy within mm. the public just regarding politics generally and yeah. how they're just sick of all politicians and sick of people arguing about politics and it's just kind of this it's definitely what the generals love. Like you like you <laughs> yeah. said, like that definitely helps them a lot. I mean, we might get the draft back. If we get a Buttigieg administration or something, I know he's promoted. He's uh, proposed I've heard, that. I've heard some things uh, about that. Yes. Automatic conscription. I think that, you know. Obviously, if you look back in the the, the Vietnam War mm-hmm. um, and how active the anti-war movement was then, maybe the height of the anti-war movement yeah. in this country. Uh, people burning draft cards. Yeah. You know, Muhammad Ali. Oh yeah. Um, you know, pacifism was big then. Big time. And like. You know the the right over the past forty years has has basically pummeled that movement and, for sure. You know I think that That's the Iraq War it sort of came back, but not with the same fervor. I mean nine eleven since nine eleven, like you know you're talking about money and lives. Obviously, the lives are a lot, but you know we spent five point nine yeah, trillion dollars, six trillion, yeah. And I think people are fatalistic and just kind of throw their hands up and think, 
you know, oh, we're doing, we're destined to, to be in, involved in endless war. I mean, thankfully now we have, you know, a resurgence of, I think in, in, on the left at least of, um, you know, anti-war candidates and, mm-hmm. and more like pacifist candidates. Definitely. I know that Mike Gravel, yeah. Uh, just pass a uh, sixty-five thousand donors. So he might get on the debate stage, and he's like the anti-war. That's his platform. He's the mm-hmm. anti-war candidate in the mm-hmm. Democratic primary. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to get too focused on twenty twenty, but I'm just using those as examples. No, no, for sure. Because you have to. I mean, politically, there has been very few voices um, out there, out and about, who have talked about non-interventionism and staying away from these type of wars. But you know, I guess to kind of push back a little bit, I think you know, if you look over, you look at history of you know anti-war, the anti-war movement. And I guess history of, of all that stuff. Cause I guess just to quickly, you know, clarify something. I think, yeah, the traditional, uh, you know, neoconservatives, the nationalist right have had a stranglehold on their point of view of what exactly is, you know, just war, not just war. But I think, you know, pretty, pretty much consistently since, uh, the inception of a lot of the ideas, I would say a lot of classical liberal and libertarian uh, authors and writers throughout time have been pretty consistent on the stance of anti-war and anti-interventionism. And I feel like right now what's going on, you know, to the anti-war movement, there's, you know, there isn't really a center to the anti-war movement anymore. It's, there's a lot of libertarians. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, people on the left who are having these movements. But, you know, in terms of the numbers, the numbers have gone down significantly altogether. And like, just to quickly end some, quickly end uh, my point here, real quick, before we get into like you know where we see all this coming from, you know, our, in our point of view or from our, our, our lens, I do think that when it comes to you know people on the left, you know, socialists who are or you know consistently anti-war and anti-interventionism, I think it's really important for there to be some type of alliance, some type of you know convergence with. You know, libertarians who are, you know, economically on the right, who there should be a alliance because in my opinion, what the state loves is different groups at odds constantly with each other. So we don't get to the actual real point of what's going on. And it's their control primarily over, um, you know, in the, in our society internally and externally. But that's kind of where I see that. But I guess to move on to the next like uh segment of the of the show i want to s- ask you guys a question on well i guess it's kind of unpacking foreign policy a little bit unpacking you know diplomacy war you know third options you know what i, what I mean by the third option i mean you know the cia and other types of things that have happened in the past and you know different approaches because i have you know a libertarian approach to um, foreign policy and to uh, any type of intervention. And I know Mike has a more of a socialist approach. And I would say, Matt, you're somewhat. Who's non- Mike? Or uh, Misha kidding. has a somewhat of approach to uh, that. Um, but in all honesty, that I do think that we do have a difference in, like you said at the beginning, there is a difference in the causes, difference in the origins, but in all honesty, I, I do think that when we, we further unpack this, we will kind of come to more of an, more of a, a agreement rather than a disagreement. So Matt, where would you consider, cause I know I'm not really sure how to, how to classify your, your views on foreign policy because you're, I wouldn't say you're apolitical, but you're non-specific in terms of your, you how know, I desi- desi- how you designation. Yeah. Right. You identify politically, but. 
where would you come from in terms of diplomacy, war, covert operations? Like, how do what do you think about when you think about those things? Where does your mind go? Uh, when I think of foreign policy, those things definitely come up. Of course. But to me, if I were to try to define foreign policy in basic terms, it would just be the way that nations interact with each other, right? Okay. And so trade is part of that. Diplomacy is part of that. Okay. How you set up your borders of your countries is part of that. Yeah. The size of your military, where you send your military is okay. part of that. Definitely. So it's it's a pretty wide range of, of things that all fall under what foreign policy is. Got you. Now, okay, go ahead. Continue. As far as where I stand, okay, yeah. I, I don't think that anything should really be – like as far as military, I think you should you, – you have the right to maintain a military. Mm -hmm. If you want to get into the libertarian ideas of the non-aggression principle, okay. that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be hard to get – it followed by the globe in its current state. I agree. It's kind of unrealistic. I agree. But um, theoretically, it makes sense. And that's where we can get into the pragmatism, the idea of pragmatism, right? More realist more Which realist is where, policy. like, yes, the libertarian theory of non-aggression makes sense. If you, if you could apply it to the world, it would – it seems like it would do good. Okay. But from a pragmatic standpoint, it's just not – it's not feasible. Okay. So to focus on ways to m try to think of ways to make – like to implement it is yeah. almost a waste of time. Gotcha. When you could be focusing on like real issues such as like border disputes or real issues such as like bad trade, like stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Now in terms of your idea, like we, we talk about – we talk about foreign policy – the term imperialism comes up a lot. Now, in terms of your ideas towards our foreign policy being imperialistic or whether it's not, wh where do you take uh, the stand and position on that? The U.S. has definitely overstepped its bounds. Mm -hmm. um, they're way too involved in <laughs> foreign <laughs> – Way too involved in foreign affairs. Yeah, um, I agree. But uh, like they kind of – have to be. That's the role they wanted. They've been wanting to play in the geopolitical sphere. That they're just the bullies. Okay. Of the I world, see. you know. I like see. okay, but maybe you can define <laughs> pragmatism more um, accurately for me because I I see pragmatism. I mean, at least self-defined pragmatists like Barack Obama. Mm. He would, you know, he got a Nobel Peace Prize, but yeah. you know, I would disagree with a lot of his foreign mm. policy. You know, in terms of border yeah. detention and deportation and everything from you know drone striking, Great. you know, increasing Pakistan boots on weddings. the ground in the <laughs> Afghan war after <laughs> yeah, yeah. campaigning exactly. against yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Syria, very like hypocritical. Libya, you know, every basically every foreign policy decision I disagree with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot. So definitely. like, but is he a pragmatist? Or like, uh, what does pragmatism mean? Does it mean we're so just one, always aiming for one example? I don't. I definitely don't consider myself a pragmatist, but really? I I can I identify with a few tenets of it. Okay. Like an example that I definitely disagree with that was um I researched a little bit. The, was in pragmatic terms, Singapore's considerable economic success is justification enough for its authoritarian means. So like that to me right. is an obvious no. Mm -hmm. Definitely it's not. Mm -hmm. um, you don't get to just be authoritarian <laughs> because your economy is doing well. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that would be a pragmatic justification for their authoritarian means. Right. If it works, it works. You know, the economy is strong, so do what they want. I can think of another country that's like that right now, uh, <laughs> the one we're in. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely, 100%.
Um, there, you know, the theory that I think we've, the America has kind of had for a long time is, you know, hegemonic stability theory and the idea that since you're, uh, you know, on top, you have to be basically the police of the world in order to, you know, police situations and, and, you know, uh, control the anarchic state, which is a realist position, anarchic state of, you know, governments in the sense of a world view. Um, do you have anything else to, okay. So another question, Matt, uh, on your position here, and then I'll get to Misha is, uh, when you, when you think about, again, foreign policy and all this stuff, when it comes to the military industrial complex, cause you did mention it, and I want to ask your opinion about the military industrial complex and where you think you kind of see it being how it is and where it can, where it's connected to, where do you, how does that fall into your, to your worldview of foreign policy? Uh, from a U.S. standpoint, yes. uh, the military is almost like a rogue branch of the government at this point, mm-hmm. just out of control spending. Yeah. Um, and even like the, the, I've read a story about Congress approving tanks. Oh, they, yeah. They had a general testify saying yeah. we don't want or need these tanks. <laughs> but Congress passed it anyways because they would lose their it jobs if they didn't. The because, M1, you know, M1 Abrams tank. Yeah. yeah. M1A1. It's like that's – in a nutshell, that <laughs> explains U.S. – Military yeah. industrial complex. I agree. That that example is a pure example of how – at least and I would agree with you there that there is cr- uh, tremendous, tremendous cronious tendencies when it comes to these corporations and basically these corporations don't exist without government contracts, right? They, they just mm-hmm. won't. Private armies are a thing. Well, the thing is like not really. I mean <laughs> they are. I mean there's Blackwater and all this stuff. But the only reason that they exist is because they get contracts from who? The State Department, government, the State Department, all over the world. Particularly, it's almost like the capitalists and the state are in cahoots. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, and I would agree with you there that you know most people who aren't you know quote unquote capitalists are the worst you know abusers to the free market, in my opinion, because most of them want competition out of the way. Most of them want personal you know connections to. The, the government personal connections to the to the representatives, and they want to have these lobbyists lining their pockets continuously. That's why you know I'm generally against you know lobbying in, you know in Congress and in the Senate, and I'm generally against any type of corporate welfare. Per, you know, so just to mention like Raytheon and all these other uh, you know uh, corporations that have an interest within you know increasing that they is exist. It, is this where we take our ad break for Raytheon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> but, you know, when when you see companies like this, the only reason that they are – have such a power – you know, the only reason that they're so powerful is because they've went to the people who have power, in my opinion, the politicians and the people who run the state and who can give these contracts out, no-bid contracts. These things are not existent in, in you know, when you talk about a private uh, world. No-bid contracts don't really exist. But – I guess now we can – that's kind of my little aside right there. But Misha, I kind of want to ask you um, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, diplomacy, um, the military industrial complex, imperialism, where does your point of view uh, stem, fu- stem from and how does it you – know, um, how does it connect to your greater worldview? Okay, well, I guess I'll. That's a lot. It is, yeah. Back. Take but your time, please. Go ahead. Yeah, like not minutes. to not to just bring Lenin into this, but I'm going to bring Lenin into this. Oh, he, go ahead. He wrote a book called Imperialism: mm-hmm. The Highest Stage of Capitalism. Yes. And, you know, you you were kind of touching on this. He and basically like the one of the five points or a couple of them that he uh, talks about is 
you know, the concentration of production and capital mm -hmm. developed to such a high stage that it created monopolies, which play a decisive role in economic life and the merging of bank capital with industrial mm -hmm. capital, the, you know, um, the creation of this financial oligarchy and the international exportation of that became extremely important. So like the world was divided into these sort of various economic maps controlled mm -hmm. by different powers mm -hmm. and, um, those interests, you know, for example, like, um, we can talk about like Iran mm -hmm. in 1953. Yes. Uh, after Iran nationalized the British owned, uh, Anglo Iranian oil company, mm -hmm. that's when we decided that US, the CIA decided to <laughs> overthrow the democratically elected leader of, of Iran. Yep. And so that's ex an example how, of how I think, uh, threats to capitalist powers, uh, instigate, you know, U.S. interventionism, mm -hmm. U.S. imperialism, and we've done mm -hmm. it throughout Latin America, other mm -hmm. places. I agree with Latin America. Uh, and it's, it's all to protect capitalist interests and to thwart threats, threats to capitalist interests, threats mm -hmm. of social democracies mm -hmm. rising up to, to global capital. So I think this is fundamentally a class struggle. And I mean, you talk about divide and conquer the way the state does it. I would argue Capitalists do it just the same, you know, dividing people among race, among other identity categories to to uh, sort of obscure the common class struggle of the working mm -hmm. class. Um, and that's that's played a role in, you know, harming the anti-war movement. So gotcha. it's a lot. I said a lot there. No, for sure. Uh, I'm it's brushing good. over a lot of history, but no, that's no, basically sure. my general worldview is that this is a class struggle. Uh, More so than foreign a, policy. Okay, so foreign policy primarily is a class struggle. Okay, that's interesting. Interesting point. Cool, cool, cool. So I guess when it comes to what I got, what I think about that, uh, first thing in terms of, uh, I, I I know the source you you speak about in terms of you know that book, but uh, I think that you know what Lenin was trying was trying to do at that time was take what was, I guess, said by, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He, he was actually a pretty interesting writer, I believe, uh, Hobson. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think at that point, you know, Hobson, he, he talked about and reiterated the classical liberal argument that, you know, imperialism reflects the, you know, the interests of small predatory class. But I think Hobson, the major thing that Hobson did that was different, which I think Lenin took, you know, took and, you know, kind of built upon. I think Hobson made the point to say that the people who are the small predatory class is, you know, the financial investors rather than the political elite. You know, and then Lenin went and then kind of adopted that view and then argued that, like you said, imperialism allowed capitalists to kind of buy off their own, I guess, working class in a way. So, they would, you know, stop the inevitable proletariat revolutions throughout the world. Um, I would, I would make the, the, the point that it kind of, this, this whole point kind of is based on your view of class and your view of exploitation, exploitation theory in particular. So at least in, in my point of view, and I, I talked about this with Danny and you on our, our talk on intersection of uh, class and taste. For me, I see class um, in a very interesting – at least in me, I think it's it's more interesting than it was a couple of years ago, my, my thoughts on it now. I do kind of agree that there is an exploiter and exploited an – an exploited class and that that, that, that uh, you know, assumption 
from Marxism is actually correct. Well, it's, I mean, it's not just an assumption. It's like there are owners of capital. That's a fact. There are people who For own sure. the means of production and there are those who don't own anything. So they are forced to sell their labor power in order to survive. Uh, For sure. But it's, so well, so the issue that comes up with that is the movement between the classes, how easy it is to be a laborer and to build up your own capital to the point where you can start your own how, business. How easy it is or how hard it is? Both. That's well, just, you know, the state you, of how yeah. easy or hard I mean, it we is can get to, into, do, I don't to move too far classes off the, up or down. Yeah, I don't sure. want to get too far off the beaten path, but if <clears> you look at the sure. stats in the U.S. particularly, the, the rate of people moving upward from one class to another is very low. And people tend to, even generationally, Families tend to stay in the same economic bracket. You know, the the one the one movement that's really happening is that even if you want to say there's a middle class, I think that's kind of a myth. But mm. if you want there, that's that's shrinking and disappearing, and more there's more poverty, more people are becoming poor in this country. So that's how I see it. But gotcha. I think I think that's uh, yeah. pretty well established. Yeah, for sure. I see what you're saying. Um, I think you know the, the historical implications of that have kind of changed because. You saw imperialist tendencies after Lenin wrote that imperialist tendencies from you know the uh, the you know Japan uh, from not from Nazi Germany from even the Soviet Union later on they did have imperialistic tendencies oh, yeah. but none of those were necessarily connected to capital those were or or in a sense economic some of those were based basically based on ethnic you know ideas of ethnic uh, purity. Ideas of ideological purity and religious purity in terms of Shintoism or even in the sense of the commie of the, of the Soviet Union, um, ideas of, you know, annexing countries for the ideas of spreading the, um, Bolshevik revolution throughout the whole world. But in, in terms of, I, I guess, you know, to finish my point on my, on my class theory, I think there is an exploited, you know, an exploiter class, but I do think that the people who are exploiting are people who are achieving power and material wealth through the use of force. And I think the people who are the exploited are people who are achieving their wealth, power through voluntary, non-coercive interactions with other individuals or other groups. That's kind of where I see my, you know, class view. So when it comes to how that affects my, you know, foreign policy view, I would say that when you, when you look at you know, uh, the Iraq war, for instance, people say, oh, we went there for oil. We went there for oil. It's like, yes and no for, for, for a few different reasons. Yes, in the sense that, yeah, people were able to get oil and all this stuff. Sure. But the more so strategic thing that happened in, in, through America is that they took the land and prevented Iran, Russia, or China getting the oil more so than us actually capturing and taking the oil. Because right now America has more oil than any of the other countries out there. We're producing more oil through fracking than we ever have historically. So our need of foreign oil has kind of gone down. That's why the Saudis yeah. have, have tanked the oil uh, prices. Well, it's it, you know capital interests aren't about need. It's 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 an endless profit motive. For example, you talk about the you bring up the Iraq War again. Mm -hmm. Before we even went into Iraq, yeah. companies had divided up. The oil fields in that country to yeah. theoretically, should they become available, yeah. should Saddam Hussein be overthrown? Of course. Here's where we'd be interested in, and here's how we'd like to divide it up. So yeah. it's, uh, I think it, it did play uh, a very large role in that decision. I mean, obviously, you know, Bush resenting his father not going all the way. Yeah. Um, you know, there are other things you can point to, but of I course. think that 
you know, we shouldn't downplay the class interests. No, well. no, for sure. I think the class interests are essential um, because I think, you know, when you talk about going to war, it's it's more so – it's more complicated than, you know, just states going to war with states. Um, it's more intricate than that. I, I do – I will I will also think – I also do think that, you know, us capturing a particular, you know, piece of oil more so than – because there is the – because the thing is like when government is in bed with big business – they both both their interests are different in the sense the government wants to take the area over primarily to you know um control the area to stop other competitors from getting what is in that area just to expand their sphere of influence exactly even. and then you know the private interest comes in in a very fascistic type of way where the private industry is now at the behest of the state goes in and says okay well we'll you know Take this land and then go ahead and you know set it up and do all this stuff for it, so that you know but, the other the other people will not get a chance to you know get involved. Do they do it at the behest of the state, or does the state do it at the behest of them? Because well, I think who owns who? You know who's who's paying who's uh, for the campaigns? Who's well, paying the, for sure? You know what lobbyists no, are no, influencing? I agree. It, it, I think the state is a tool of capitalist power because. I mean, they bought them off. I mean, well, the I thing think is, that like, definitely works both ways. Well, I see. The thing is, it is, it is a, it is a both ways type of relationship. But the thing is, if you made it illegal for, for you know, the government to delve out any special interests or any special powers to any of these companies, or for those companies to donate tons yeah, and tons and tons of then money, the remo- to yeah. The so the separation of so, so the I'm a big proponent, and I know you guys probably are not. I'm a big proponent for the separation of economy and state for the same reasons as the separation of church and state for the exact same reasons because it's, because church and state when they join together have a very nasty record and they all end up going to they all end up going towards war. Look at the church and the state getting towards. What did that lead to? The Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> the state and government, you know, the state and um, you know corporations getting towards together, especially these you know military industrial you know complex you know corporations. Their main goal is to you know. Get profits, of course. Like any other corporation, that's their main goal. But at the same time, it's not – it's at the behest of the state to say, OK, well, we don't need X, Y, and Z because it's not necessary. Like you said, Matt, with your, with your, with your, with your explanation of that general who said we don't need these tanks, yeah. but Congress signed and passed and gave the funding towards it. Because that kept Congress their jobs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, there's jobs in my district that rely on this military base. See, and the thing weapons. is, they also, yeah, they also make it an economic argument right. that a lot of these people do that. Oh, here's my constituents. You know, they work here. My small little midwestern city with the factories right. will shut down if we don't keep making. There'll these be tanks. no economy there. Yeah. yeah, and the thing is, like, that's that's a really big argument that you know a lot of people who you know fancy themselves conservatives or neocons like to make that you know if you kind of didn't have this war machine going that it would really hurt the average you know american who's involved in these corporations or subcorporations it's really a disgusting immoral unethical argument that i find you know uh, like i said just absolutely abhorrent but i guess now matt uh, I had a I had a question for you in terms of your opinion on whether or not whether or not let me see how I want to put this together whether or not we as a citizenry can get together you know now with social media can we affect change more so than you were able we were able to affect change in the sixties I mean is it possible or do you feel like 
social media is such a distraction today that we can't get the message of non-interventionism and anti-war out there. Uh, keeping social media out of it okay. for now. Okay, let's do that then. Fine. Uh, just as far as finding ways for all these different groups to come together. On this message, right? Or on what message? Just in terms of talk, having oh. a discussion, oh, discussion about foreign oh, policy, okay. Okay. opening That's... up a dialogue between oh, okay. all these different That's groups, trying right. to find common ground, you okay. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I see where you're going with it's this. It's definitely possible, and it, I think it would probably have to start in like a small grassroots type situation. I don't think you're going to get that cooperation in the government at this point. Mm. I think they're too far like, you know, on their own sides and politicians, honestly, just looking out for their own interests regardless of – coming together with other I agree with other groups primarily. and trying to find common ground they're like no this is this is my hill that I chose to die on <laughs> yes. I'm here for the long haul you know well, yeah. I want to agree and disagree with that because okay. I think one recent instance of I guess you'd call it reaching across the aisle is Bernie Sanders working with I believe it's Mike Lee who's a Republican from Utah to introduce a resolution to stop weapon sales to Saudi Arabia because mm -hmm. they're bombing Yemen and mm -hmm. causing essentially a genocide of there course, yes. and mass starvation, yep. children dying of starvation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. people suffering there. Um, yeah. And that joint resolution was passed uh, in the House and uh, you know the president refused to sign it obviously. But at least symbolically, that's an example of certain politicians – Going adhering, the yeah, and adhering to a moral a, a moral stance that's strong. So, that's a good point. but um, I will agree that you know the only way real you know things have really changed. If you look at, like the Vietnam War, why mm -hmm. did why were politicians you know suddenly against it and suddenly you know wanting to end it after so many years? Well, a because of all the suffering, but b because people took to the streets and there were mass protests and mass demonstrations and. Well, activists and like that's the only way anything has changed is you need to like publicly like get out on the streets and i agree and, and protest the reason and that, that works that's the, we have to because no polit politicians are just like hmm you know uh what do i you know, what do i think like in, in the iraq war like do i do i do i think we should just end it because we're killing a bunch of people like hmm yeah no no politician yeah i mean most 99 percent of them don't think that way they yeah. they're they're reacting to what their constituency is putting out there. And I so agree. it depends on, you know, what are you doing in the in your community, in your yeah. streets, where and when you are to uh, voice your opinion. I said another big reason that the Vietnam War was so such a profound, you know, had such a profound impact on the American people is because that was the first time they could see what was happening mm, yeah. overseas in color on their television. War reporters, yep. Right. Who were embedded with troops for the first and, time. Uh, so that kind of gets into the the evolution of like information sharing, I think, played a huge part in okay. just the development of foreign policy. Oh. You know, you can go back to Rome. Even before Rome, like ancient times, they would have messengers go back and forth yeah. between kings who had yes. domains, you yes. know, and that was like very basic foreign policy. Yes. This king over here was like, we won't mess with this king on the east side if – if you let the West Side be and we'll mm -hmm. share our grain mm -hmm. with you if you mm -hmm. give us your crop that goes well over there. It's like that's that was a, the very basic start. Of that's an interesting – that's an interesting point. I mean I'm a big believer that if trade doesn't cross borders, soldiers will eventually and that's – I mean I really believe that if you do not allow countries to – have free communication with each other, free, you know, to trade with each other and the ability for, you know, an individual from this country and individual from that country to share their ideas and to share their thoughts and even to share their talents. And, uh, I think that's essential for a free world and, you know, a, a, a war, a world that 
doesn't have as much warfare as we see today. So something like NAFTA, yeah. for example, does that mean that you're for something like that that theoretically opens up trade between Canada and the U.S.? So NAFTA, NAFTA is a very particular situation that isn't really what I'm just talking about in free trade because there's a lot of things in NAFTA. Okay. That have nothing to do with is, is traditionalist. There, is there a U.S. free trade agreement? I don't that, think so. Okay. <laughs> no. That you think? Okay. No, I don't think. I don't think there is any currently right now that uphold the principles that I would find I would be comfortable agreeing with, and uphold a common, you know, good between the two countries, where it doesn't seem where one country is totally jibbing out another one, and uh, another country is, you know having some background deals about foreign policy that we have no idea about because no one gets to see these trade deals and there's a lot of foreign policy stuff behind these trade deals like access to your to your tarmacs and access to this and access to that we don't even hear about well, yeah, as matt, matt pointed out he gave a great definition of foreign policy is free trade is definitely part of that for sure you yeah. know well yeah yeah well yeah between countries for sure trade policy trade policy is, is huge definitely that definitely affects countries and like you know Having a, a horrible trade policy like we currently have right now can lead to war and can lead to horrible things. So I mean, like, like, like I'm think, like I think I'm, at least I, what I believe, I think you know, when you don't have a sufficient amount of trade between countries and it's not contentious to the point where people are being accusatory and you know, making like so making statements that these people are stealing these jobs and these people are stealing those jobs. I think it would be a much more comfortable and you know benign conversation to have Matt. i'm on an international level okay free trade uh, there's bigger countries there's smaller countries countries with more power countries with less power so you're gonna have you're gonna have to find a way to balance all yeah. this out in some saying. you know the world system or the whatever the however the world is globally working at the time mm -hmm. whether it's back in the day when they were shipping spices back and forth on wooden boats mm -hmm. or now you know giant shipping freighters and planes yeah. flying yeah refrigerated planes you know stuff yes. like that yeah so the technology has definitely advanced and made it easier to uh you know just to trade more globally okay to have your country's products available to the rest of the world mm -hmm. so i think that the progress there has been good mm -hmm. as far as just the internationalization, I guess, of trade. Mm -hmm. But that also makes it a lot harder to manage on a global scale. Okay. Before, when you just had like landlocked countries trading back and forth with each other, you know, they're right next to each other. The countries are living day to day right next to each other. Mm -hmm. It It's almost easier to solve a dispute with your next door neighbor than it would be with uh, like some dude in a three blocks over, you know, like because of the proximity. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So when you when you have like a trade disagreement with someone halfway across the world, that it gets tricky as to as far as like which countries are involved, how they can respond with their militaries, the impacts that that has on other countries who may be allied. So it's it's a tricky, sticky situation. I agree with you. I agree with you in that. I agree with you in that way. You know, because, you know, a lot of mismanagement between trade, definitely, I do agree, could lead towards war and lead towards, you know, things that are preferably not, you know, something that, you know, people want to engage in and all this other stuff. You know, I, I do. I mean, I am a big believer that, you know, um, war is the health of the state. You know, as Randolph Byrne, you know, made the, made the statement during World War One, 
and that you know for for me as a libertarian it 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 really means that the more that the more warfare that's going on and you see a continuous endless war that we've been having current i mean for i want to say what 30 years we've been having an, an endless war continuously and there's 30 more than 30 i would say well, yeah probably no, yeah, now yeah. That it's 2019 well, 2019 for sure but i'm saying when i say continuous war i mean per, primarily the I'd say war that, that i've been alive the war on terror let's put it that way the u.s has been in a state of you know continual war since about the 60s i'd say uh yeah i was like ba- the, well 50s if you if you count the uh, the korean war too sure there's been you know decades well I, that was like the korean war like what was the last declared actually declared by congress war. yeah that's that gets see that gets into a whole other right thing. like the, you have war to define powers. war what's a war well, what's a military conflict well what's war a, see the thing is like it all goes into your idea of what war powers should and shouldn't be uh, the united states has changed the definition of assassination from assassination to targeted killing so oh yeah. it's not illegal we're not assassinating it's well, just it's, a targeted it's killing. linguistic ambiguity you know creates a situation where the morals become loose yeah. and the morals become kind of you know Hazy, so you can kind of do what no, you want. Oh, and to they do. definitely do that on purpose. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when it comes to, you know, warfare, because, you know, we talked about, you know, foreign policy, and then an aspect of foreign policy is, is, is the warfare. military. Yeah. A huge role. Huge role. Now, in a, in a sense, do you, I, I don't, we haven't, and the thing is, like, since the only, like, war we can go back to and say, as Americans, uh, we've won, Definitively is World War II. Every other war has been kind of like, ah, and that's kind of really created a situation in this country where I think it's encouraged the state, the educational system to push this uh, pro-troops, pro-military shindig. The NFL is getting, you know, paid millions of dollars by the government to go do these ads. And the thing is like, look. The national you, anthem at the beginning of all yeah, those football yeah. games. And the thing is to me personally, if, you know, you're an individual within the military and all this stuff, you know, granted, I'm not saying that you were duped or weren't duped. I'm not saying that you aren't doing things that might be helping people or aren't helping people in certain situations. Because, you know, there has been situations where people have gone to actually, you know, go and help people. Kosovo is an example. In uh, back in the '90s, when you know the Christian majority were killing the Muslim minority, and we went in and and actually helped. So I mean, that's an exa- I mean, granted, that's an example of a humanitarian foreign policy. And I think you know, if you look at the United States since World War II, it's mostly been fumbled. I mean, all the things we've been doing. Have been fumbled humanitarian projects more so than you know mustache twirling uh, imperialism. I think, and the thing is, like the mustache twirling is there. Don't get me wrong. You know, as uh, one of my favorite you know writers, Chomsky put out in his book uh, American Power and the New Mandarins, one of the things he pointed out was um, in schools, in the universities, these professors he calls them the New Mandarins. They have government jobs, government contracts where they do work within the foreign policy apparatus, within the State Department, and they really believe that they can mold and shape the world to whatever they want to do. Some of these people are are known as neocons, right? Uh, some of these – so an example of that would be someone like James Burnham historically. And a lot of these neocons started off as Trotskyists, right? And the, you know, the idea of Trotsky is you have a permanent revolution. You have a permanent revolution around the world in order to spread the Soviet I – mean, in order to spread the Bolshevik revolution. 
take that same idea, take, you know, Bolshevism or Bolshevism out of the way, input American exceptionalism. You have the exact same ideology. Just the whole idea of a neocon is to spread the American, the American exceptionalist. And that goes far, as far back way. as Manifest Destiny. You well, know, yeah. When the colonists first got there, it was, they had claim to the yeah, West. Of course. It was all about ownership. I, I don't really see the connection between neocons and Trotskyites. I mean – Most who most neocons were Trotskyites before. Like John Bolton? No, he, like, no he's a, I wouldn't call Bolton okay. a neocon. I would call him an, 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 an a really? – uh, Oh, no, no. He has been at odds with neocons in the past. I'm talking about when the 70s and 80s. So he's been at at odds with the National Review crowd. I'm talking about William Buckley. I'm talking about James Burnham. I'm talking about even insofar as um, more of some of the more recent editors. He's been against a lot of what they've said in the past. But Bolton is an American nationalist who is, you know, fellow travelers with neocons. They're pretty much pretty similar. And yeah, I don't, policy, I don't. I mean, it might there might be a distinction, but I think it's yeah. a distinction without a difference. For foreign uh, policy, very little. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, I don't. He's he's a conservative through and through. Neoconservative. He's a war hawk. I agree, he's a war uh, hawk. Yeah, and that I mean, that's that all, that goes hand in hand with American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. like you were talking about. Yes. Um, you know, to spread it. I would uh, to sort of if we're going to paint a vision. Of, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead here. Of, of what. <laughs> Foreign policy should look like. Okay, that's a good idea. That's a good place. Um, you know what? What principles do we want to be implemented, and how do we want to see U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. change? Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, well, a, you know, the greatest national security threat right now is climate change. Okay, uh, you know, which has been driven by corporate interests. Has been driven by, uh, you know, CO2 pollution. Um, you know, ExxonMobil knew in the set, they were the first to find out in the seventies that CO2 was human, you know, human caused climate change. Uh, they hid that they've, they've, like you were talking about, you know, um, the education system Mm -hmm. and and sort of the, the public campaign of patriotism and, you know, Mm neoconservatism is sort of, it's sort of paralleled by the, the, the public campaign against, you know, uh, climate change and denying, denying climate science and, uh, you know, rebuffing that. So I think we need to mobilize uh, uh, climate policy like the like the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the second, I would say we need to end arms sales. You know, to mm-hmm. countries like Saudi Arabia, I mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, that's fueling that conflict. You know, around the globe, mm-hmm. all the arm, all the arms that we deal. Mm-hmm. We also need to just wind down our military bases. Most Americans, you know, we're talking about education. Most Americans aren't even aware how many bases we have and where they are. Uh, you know, Germany, Japan, Korea. You know the Middle East. You know every, most countries. Yeah, like, I would well, we have a military, have a military presence. Military you know, th- th- there's this laughable you know distinction between combat troops and non-combat troops, and it's just more bullshit to yeah. to ob- obfuscate the the real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth, I would say you know we obviously all agree that we need to wind down the military budget. And, you know, fund basic – I think we should fund only a defensive armed force. America should 100%. only get involved in conflicts in which it has been attacked. 100%. Um, you know, 9-11 was a disaster because it was – oh, our government was like, oh, this opportunity to to go to Iraq and finally mm-hmm. finish the job there, which had it had nothing to do with Iraq. It was yeah. all, you know, al-Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I think, you know, we need to learn a lesson from the 08 financial crisis and – you know, this is an aspect we haven't really touched on, but mm-hmm. limit the ability of uh, banks to move 
capital, what's some by some know as hot money around or dark money around the globe uh, to fund uh, warlike interest. And I know HSBC is a bank that was caught years ago funneling money to actually literal terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, no one was held accountable. They paid you know, a fine, which is essentially a, a set slap on the wrist, nothing to them. So we need to crack down on the ability of money to, to hide money in tax havens and, and all this funneling of money abroad in order to, um, in order to solve these foreign policy issues. Okay. Matt, your last thoughts? I agree with almost every single thing he said. Um, I just take issue with the very first part about climate change, but I think my views on that are definitely an outlier. Okay. um, In terms of can I ask briefly what they are? I'm just curious. Uh, I want to debate. Got five minutes. I'm not going to debate you. It's not anthropomorphic, so I believe that it's mostly not human caused. It has a lot more to do with the sun and the oceans and what's inside the Earth's core. Well, that's that's a whole other. That's, oh, yeah, that's, 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 that's a whole, a, that's a whole, whole other, three, po- that's a whole other podcast. So we can <laughs> save that. To, we'll save that. You have to argue with 95% of the science. That's a lateral move we don't want to make, guys. Let's, uh, let's that 97% out. claim was made up in 2015. Matt, that's been debunked m- Matt, multiple times. But you're, Finish your point on foreign policy. Um, no, I agree with mostly everything okay. he said. I think those are all really good examples of um, things that we could do, steps that we could – realistic steps even that we could take. Okay. That would help to uh, just improve the environment or the atmosphere um, of U.S. foreign relations. Okay, and I guess to kind of you know to put my last uh, point out there, I think you know our foreign policy should be a national defense type of situation, and I think you know um, uh, socialists, libertarians, and centrists, and people around should be able to understand that it really comes down to the use of force against other people and it comes down to the actual lives of these people more so than any um, perceived notions of uh, uh, you know financial exploitation or actual exploitation or perceived notions of um, terroristic threats and actual terroristic threats that have happened. I think that there needs to be a understanding between groups and between different people to make um, the situation at hand more um, palatable towards a brighter and better future. But I guess my my last point I, I would kind of want to end at is um, the economist F.A. Hayek had a really good point and one of his books is called The Fatal Conceit. And uh, The Fatal Conceit is a presumption that, you know, man is able to sh- – The Fatal Conceit is – the presumption that man is able to shape the world around him according to his wishes. You know, and primarily this was around economics. And, you know, the fatal conceit assumed that because rules that facilitate coordination emerge through human action, it is possible for planners to design and set rules that will generate a preferable outcome. You know, so like I said, Hayek argued that, you know, in terms of socialism and that, you know, it had a facial fatal conceit, but I believe that you can take the exact same theories that Hayek had and point it towards um, uh, the fatal conceit. So the five, you know, really quick things I want to point out before we end is the fatal conceit says that good intentions do not necessarily lead to good results. Hayek noted that although, you know, socialism was driven by good intentions and endangered standards of living for a significant portion of the population, similar foreign intervention are often driven by benevolent intentions. For example, foreign interventions often aim to help the, you know, poor societies in the world or address humanitarian concerns. However, many foreign interventions have failed to generate 
the desired results in many cases. And, you know, another thing he mentioned was reliance on top-down planning, and he compared that to the current socialist, you know, democracies and authoritarian countries out there that had a top-down approach. And like like that, planning it wouldn't really work out and would lead to a problem. Um, the third thing is that he mentioned was the view of the development of technology being an issue as an issue. So many people view technology as a job killer and all these other things in those countries. And you could also take that into effective foreign policy that, you know, when you actually do have diplomacy, when you do actually have all these things working out, you kill jobs essentially of all these, you know, companies like Raytheon and Boeing and whatever making these things. So the, the, the quote unquote displacement of people is actually a good thing in this case because their jobs are, you know, funding and killing people primarily. And, you know, the reliance of bureaucracy over more of a free idea and free, you know, free uh, communication. That's been a problem within foreign policy as well as traditional uh, economies in the past. And I guess the primacy and the thing to end on when it comes to this jingoist, you know, militaristic thing, it really comes down to the elements of uh, a collectivist point of view towards and how a state or a nation can go against another nation and it's us against them and they're worse than us and we're better than them and therefore what we do is was you know is is moral and good and what they do is evil. This whole idea of you know pointing fingers at you know this country or this group or whatever whatever and you know saying this is who they are and this is why they're bad has led us down terrible terrible roads in America and across the world generally. But again, guys, I really want to thank you for coming in today. I wish we had another hour, honestly, to completely unpack all this stuff. We oh, can al- there's so much more to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. We can, we'll definitely have part two, no doubt. But again, I want to thank all the listeners out there. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful day. Take Thanks care. for having us, Virgil. Oh, of course. Had a great time. Mm-hmm.